begin uh, this morning and go back into Romans chapter 12 in our current series, Authentic Christianity, I want to share with you uh, one, one of the things that I think is one of the best uh, descriptions of the blessings of God that I've ever heard. It actually comes from the mouth of a child who was not really trying to describe God's blessings at all, but she was describing her first ride in an elevator. She related her experience with these words, I got into this little room and the upstairs came down. Actually, we can experience that too, right? Out of the mouth of, of babes. Don't you think that those words paint an accurate picture of what happens when you and I experience God's blessings in this life? The upstairs comes down, so to speak. God has truly blessed us, hasn't he? I mean, sometimes it's an absolutely amazing thing to me how he will take the things that we do, the things that we feel are insignificant and use them for his glory to impact other people for the kingdom of God. There are times when we struggle in our careers. We, we wrestle with our relationships and others in the world or in the church. Times when we labor in our ministry making no visible headway, feeling that we're accomplishing very little for the kingdom. And yet years later, we discover that some inadvertent little act that we did or some off-the-cuff word that we spoke changed the entire course of a person's life and drew them into a relationship with Jesus. God, in His grace, sometimes pulls back the curtain and allows us to see that some action or attitude or seemingly something that was insignificant to us actually made Christ real to somebody. And on numerous occasions, I have had the privilege of listening to different people from different walks of life and with extremely different situations share with me how God allowed them to discover how he was using them to impact the lives of others that way. What a blessing they received in all of that. And this rush of joy swept over me for them. Because when real Christianity is displayed to others in the world, things are accomplished and God is glorified. Amen? Last time we were together, I ended our time with a challenge to you to make your Christian walk credible by giving a part of yourself away to somebody, to be a giving tree to somebody. How many of you at least attempted to do that last week? Okay, good. Maybe you simply decided to give an hour of your time to write a note of encouragement Offer a hug of affirmation. Maybe you've made this visit of mercy, shared a meal with someone, a word of compassion or an act of kindness with someone who had a need. Some of the most important things that we do in life are often neither dramatic nor are they memorable. Let me say that again. Some of the most important things that we do in our life that impact people for the kingdom of God are often neither dramatic nor Memorable. But Jesus said that to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you did it to me. We tend to forget or discount the little things that we do, but Jesus never forgets them. And he does not disregard them. It's those seemingly insignificant things that makes the character of our Christianity believable to the world around us. One of the best examples of this truth 
I know is a story of a Down syndrome man by the name of Johnny. And this story is worth repeating. I love this story. Johnny worked at a grocery store. And one day he went to a training event led by a speaker named Barbara Glantz, who goes around the country and and speaks to people about positive attitudes in the workplace. And she was talking to 3,000 frontline workers for a supermarket chain, truck drivers, cashiers, and stalkers. And Barbara was speaking on how people can make a difference. She described how every interaction with another person is a chance to create a memory, to bless someone's life. And she talked about how important it is for all of us to look for these moments. And she placed on the walls all around the stage, as she always does when she speaks, posters with inspiring positive statements. And she told some stories and then went home, but she left her phone number for everybody that was at the conference, and she invited the people at the conference to actually call her if they wanted to talk more about something she said. How many conferences have you been to where the main speaker actually gives you his or her cell phone number to call them? Well, she did. And about a month later, Barbara received a call from one of the people at that session. He was a 19-year-old grocery bagger by the name of Johnny. Johnny proudly informed her that he had Down syndrome, and then he told her his story. He said, Barbara, I liked what you talked about, but I didn't think I could do anything special for our customers. After all, I'm just a grocery bagger. And then he had an idea. He decided that every night when he came home from work, he would find a thought for the day, and he decided that um, he would pass these out for the next shift, in his next shift. And so it would be something positive, some reminder of how good it was to be alive or how much people matter or how many gifts were surrounded by every day. If he couldn't find one, he would make one up. Every night, his dad would help him enter the saying six or seven times on a page in the computer. Then Johnny would print 50 pages. Then he would take out a pair of scissors and carefully cut 300 copies of those sayings. And then he'd turn them all over and sign his name on the back. Johnny put the stack of pages next to him while he worked, and each time he finished bagging somebody's groceries, he would put his saying on top of the last bag. And then he would stop what he was doing, look the person straight in the eye, and he would say to them, I put a great saying in your bag. I hope it helps you to have a good day. Thanks for coming here. A month later, a store manager called Barbara. He said, Barbara, you won't believe what's happened here. I was making my rounds, and I got up to the cashiers, and the line at Johnny's checkout was three times longer than anyone else's line. It went all the way down to the frozen food aisle. The manager got on the loudspeaker to get more checkout lines open, but he couldn't get any of the customers to move. And they said, that's okay. We'll wait. We want to be in Johnny's line And one woman came up to him, grabbed his hand, and said this. says, I used to shop in your store once a week. Now I come in every single time I drive by because I want to get one of Johnny's thoughts for the day. And then Barbara says, Johnny is doing more than filling bags with groceries. He's filling lives with hope. Now, there's a reason Johnny's lines are three times longer than anyone else's. 
Our souls need to be fed. Just as our bodies do. Bodies are fed by protein and carbs. Souls are fed by words. One author said, what people need from us the most is not more information. They just need words that will feed their souls. Sometimes words as simple as thank you or I hope you have a really good day can feed somebody's soul. Of course, what makes the words on the paper mean so much is who they come from. Words alone can come from a fortune cookie, right? When people get them from Johnny, they're reminded of the beauty of one person forgetting his own limitations and seeking to make his life a blessing to somebody else. Whatever burdens Johnny carries make his gift that much brighter. Know who the most important person in that store is? Johnny the bagger. A few months later, the manager called Barbara once again to tell her Johnny was transforming not just his checkout lines and the people that were coming to it, but the entire store. He told her that when the floral department had a broken flower or an unused corsage, they used to throw it away. Now they go out in the aisles, they find an elderly woman or a little girl, and they pin it on her. The butchers started putting ribbons on cuts of meat they wrap up for customers. The people who make their shopping carts are trying to make carts with wheels that actually work. (laughs) And all the peoples of the grocery store will be blessed through Johnny, right? If it can happen in a grocery store, it can happen anywhere. By the way, Do you know who the most important person in your family, your neighborhood, and your workplace is? You, when you're blessing somebody else. You can be like Johnny. See, what Johnny does isn't flashy. It's not slick. It's not overly complicated. It's not strategically calculated. He's just a bagger of groceries expressing his heart of love, leaving his signature on people's lives. You can do that. In fact, that's kind of what being a real Christian is all about, isn't it? We're just lovers of Jesus expressing our heart, leaving his signature on people. When on earth did we forget that? When did we forget that? Maybe if we remembered that, we'd recover our passion for the gospel. Sometimes we're tempted to think that our current job or our position or our situation in our life is an obstacle or a barrier to Christ's mission. I talk to people all the time who think this way. I hate to admit it, but sometimes I think this way. Don't you? Our attitude says a great deal about our sincerity as followers of Christ. But friends, in the course of life, many of the events we encounter, the situations that we're blindsided by are are far less important than how you and I react to them. Living a life of faith which glorifies God and attracts people to Jesus Christ is not about being encompassed by the perfect surroundings or just about engaging in the right activity, but more importantly, it's about having the right attitude which ends up producing the right activity in whatever environment that we find ourselves in. 
A.W. Tozer once wrote these words, it's not enough that I hold an inspired book in my hands. I must have an inspired heart. Truth, he says, has a soul as well as a body. A person who's filled with the Spirit will have an attitude that is distinctively Christ-like. And what does that look like? Well, in Romans chapter 12, verses 14 through 16, we're going to look at today, tells us. And the first thing is this. Powerful Christian attitude shows the world and people sympathy. Sympathy. Look at verses 14 and 15 of Romans chapter 12. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Let's stop there for now. Having a sympathetic attitude in any given situation paints a powerful picture to the world about our faith. Christ showed sympathy. To be Christ-like means that we should be nothing less And so there's a number of ways that we can do this. First of all, in verse 14, we see that we must show sympathy even in times of adversity. Paul says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. This command, this is a command to be practiced as a matter of habit, by the way. The command here means to continually make it your habit of life. And I must say, it's probably the hardest of all three Paul mentions in these verses. But it's not a new command. Jesus taught us the same thing. In Matthew chapter 5, in verses 43 to 48, Jesus said these words. He said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Jesus always did that, right, in the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard this, but I'm telling you this. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you only, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? But if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And the word perfect here simply means to be complete or mature. To bless people that are actually going out of their way to make your life miserable and praying for their forgiveness is the epitome, Jesus says, of spiritual maturity. Is that right? Anger, hostility, unforgiveness, and revenge are natural human responses. Anyone can do that, and everyone does that. A five-year-old can play that tit-for-tat game, can't they? But returning kindness and love and to pray for those who mistreat you, well, that says something completely different to the world. Jesus said it shows that you are exhibiting the character here of sons and daughters of God. That's what Matthew says, I just read. In other words, like father, like son. Like father, like daughter. Now, this is a large pill. 
and we choke on it every time we try to swallow it, don't we? Because we live in a society that is obsessed with getting our revenge and exalting our own personal rights. People on today's streets would just as soon kill you as look at you. And if you read the the news this past week, you see that's true. And that's where the evidence is, as close as the daily news. As Micah and Dorcas Magaji walked through their Nigerian village the morning of December 18th, they were confronted with a choice. A group of Muslim men surrounded them, demanding that they deny Christ as their Lord. And Micah and Dorcas could deny Christ and live, or they could remain faithful to Christ and face possible death. Here's Micah and Dorcas, and they're walking, and they're surrounded, and they're demanded that they deny Christ and live, or they're faithful to Christ and die. Micah told them, we were born into a Christian family. We are still Christians today. There is no way that we're going to turn around from our past. The men threatened to cut off Micah's arm and kill him if he didn't renounce his faith. Only God can take a life, he responded. It is from God, so you cannot take my life. The Muslims then tried to intimidate Dorcas, his wife, but she also remained faithful. She says, I'm married to a Christian. There's no way I would go back. Wherever my husband goes, that is where I'll go. I'm not changing from this faith to any other. Dorcas's response infuriated the men, and they shot her and then hacked at, at both of Micah's forearms with a machete before leaving him for dead. Now, the story of the attack got to some Christian elders, and so they sent people to rescue me, 35-year-old Micah explained. It's, it's the power of God that has kept me up to this point. While it is unclear who the attackers were in this case, their methods point to Boko Haram, the jihadist group known for its brutality and public allegiance to Islamic State. But it also works behind the scenes. Boko Haram is often the inspiration for, if not a direct influence on, average Muslims who attack their Christian neighbors, especially in northern Nigeria. Micah's pastor said that most of those who attacked them were their neighbors were people who knew them. He says, you'll find that your next-door neighbor will be the one to bring out their gun and start shooting you and your family. So, with that in mind, how do you react when someone wrongs you? Or even pulls out in front of you in traffic? A little cursing, maybe? Possible hand gesture? like waving your finger at them? (laughs) Did you know that the word curse is a strong, strong word in Scripture? To curse someone is, is still regarded in the East as aiming to destroy the object of the curse. Friends, listen, if we can't control our attitudes when driving a car, how in the world do you think you would react if someone did personal harm to your home or to your family? or to your wife right in front of you. See, to bless and not curse in the face of real adversity 
indicates real spiritual maturity. And by the way, it requires infinitely more strength, demonstrates unparalleled self-control, and unleashes exponentially more firepower than a mindless rampage ever could. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 32 says this, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. Proverbs 19.11 says, A man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. James in the New Testament, chapter 1, verses 19 to 20 says, Look, remember this, my dear brothers and sisters. Everyone must be quick to listen, but slow to speak and slow to become angry because human anger does not achieve God's righteous purposes. How do you react when those... People, when people attack you personally. Do you imitate what Christ did to his persecutors as they crucified him? As the sinless Son of God hung there for their sins instead of cursing them or annihilating them with the wave of his hand, which he could have done in an instant, you know what he did? He prayed for them. With, an, with unimaginable mercy, Father, forgive them for they don't even know what they're doing. Unless you think that he was only able to do it because, well, after all, he was God, think again. In Acts chapter 7, verse 60, as the Jewish leaders stoned him, a very human Stephen uttered almost the identical words to his Killers, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Right now, I'm again thinking of Micah, who was left to die by his ruthless attackers with his arm chopped off. Before the attackers left Micah for dead, they stole his cell phone. Islamic extremists routinely take their victims' cell phones so that they can identify other Christian contacts. It also allows them to break the news of the killing to loved ones who call the phone, further terrorizing the Christian community. After being taken to the hospital, Micah borrowed his brother's cell phone to call his attackers on his own phone. I told them, he said, you people thought you have killed me, but my God has saved me. Surprisingly, the attacker responded by apologizing. He even told Micah he'd like to ask his forgiveness in person once his wounds were healed. I'm a Christian, he told them. I don't bear grudges. I don't keep records of wrongs. I've already forgiven you. Even after the men killed his wife and attempted to dismember him, Micah said he's willing to meet them in person while he's unsure if it's a trap He's certain God is in control of the whole situation. God will show a way, he said. They may cancel if they have the courage to come and meet me. I don't have a problem with that. I will meet with them because God is involved in this. I will meet with them and they will not attack me. You see here in verse 14, Paul is not talking about kind feelings or polite gestures when he says, bless those 
who persecute you, bless and curse not. He's advocating something extremely difficult for you and I to do. In fact, it is an attitude absolutely impossible for us to possess apart from Christ. Jesus was specific in his call to discipleship in Luke chapter 6. Verse 27, beginning there, he says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you. Whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Treat others the same way that you would want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. See, Luke says, love your enemies, do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. These are arguably the most authentic characteristics of Christ-like behavior that I know of, and they're the hardest. They display Jesus to the world with so much credibility that the world almost cannot handle it. This kind of attitude gives our Christianity teeth, gives it bite, and galvanizes our witness to the world, doesn't it? It takes incredible devotion to Christ and his word to exhibit this kind of spiritual life. And by the way, Paul's not challenging us in these verses to display a better-than-average Christian attitude. What he's describing here is the normal Christian life, the authentic Christian life. So let me ask you a question. Are you having a hard time forgiving your spouse for something rather trivial? Do you hold a grudge against another member of this church for something minor in comparison to what you just heard? Do you talk about people hatefully behind their backs? Don't those things seem a little trivial compared to real persecution? Don't they? Now, if our attitudes are wrong in these little things, how will we ever survive real oppression when it comes, because if we're truly disciples of Jesus Christ, we will suffer some kind of persecution someday, according to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. And we must respond with a powerful attitude of sympathy in adversity. But again here, Paul says we need to show sympathy not just in times of adversity, but also in times of prosperity. Look at verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Someone has said that it's harder to fulfill the first half of this verse than the second. As John MacArthur points out, when another person's blessing or happiness is at our expense or when their favored circumstances or notable accomplishments make ours seem barren or dull, The flesh does not lead us to rejoice, but tempts us to resent. Paul didn't say resent those who rejoice, but how often do we do that? Are you joyful when someone else prospers? 
Can you genuinely be happy for them? This is what it means to love the most of these as opposed to the least of these. I'll let Mark Buchanan explain. He says, the most of these is that person who does what you do only better than you. Maybe much better. It's the person you, as well as everyone else, are most likely to notice and resent. Your rival, the one who threatens to eclipse you, it's your prettier sister. It's your more athletic brother. It's the worship team singer who everyone raves about when you're standing right there and you sing too. It's the preacher they fawn over, the artist they gush about, the dancer they adore. It's the man with 10 talents to the man who has only one. It's David to Saul. It's Abel to Cain. It's Joseph to his brothers. The most of these is the person who excels in the very area that you want to excel in and maybe even do excel in. They just excel more. Their presence makes you nearly invisible. A Christ-following attitude allows us to cheer that person on when our inclination is to jeer them or gossip about them or find the worm in their apple. It frees us to be our biggest rival's biggest fan. That's a tough one, isn't it? Enjoying someone else's joy is the response of a sincere Christ-like attitude. It evidences a complete absence of jealousy. That is really, really hard. On the flip side, let me ask you this question. Do you think it's okay to rejoice when your enemy suffers? Maybe you think they deserve it. And maybe they do deserve it. But if you do, your attitude is not Christ-like. If you rejoice when your enemy suffers, it says, you know, the Bible says your attitude is not Christ-like because that didn't happen to Christ. In fact, it's just the opposite. Proverbs 17.5 says, those who rejoice at the misfortune of others will be punished. Thirdly, we must show sympathy in times of tragedy. Again, verse 15 says, weep with those who weep. That's what weeping with the heavy-hearted, something that we, we should do. Christians are marked by sympathy, not apathy, according to the Scripture. Indifference has overtaken this world, hasn't it? Society's become callous to what's really important and compassionate to comparatively trivial things, i.e., they will kill babies but save trees. Here is what you, where you and I as Christ followers can make an impact. When the world deserts the lonely and the hurting and the dying and the ugly and the hungry and the sick and the misguided and the countless others who are weeping, the bruised reeds and the dimly burning wicks of this world, the disciple of Christ can stand alongside them and weep with them because we know that we are subject to the same pain and grief, aren't we? But we can also hope of the, offer them the hope of Christ, something a cold and unfeeling world cannot do. 
Sympathy in times of tragedy is a very powerful attitude, and sometimes all it can do is simply to sit and weep with someone who's weeping. No words, no wisdom, just Christ-like sensitivity. And we can do that. The words of Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, beautifully exemplifies this attitude of sensitivity. Jeremiah 9, verse 1, it says, Oh, that my head were a spring of water and my eyes a fountain of tears, and I would weep day and night for the slain of my people. This powerful Christian attitude displays a powerful, sympathetic emotion. It forgives and blesses in the face of adversity. It rejoices in another's prosperity, and it weeps in another's tragedy. It shows sympathy. But a powerful Christian attitude displays something else according to verse 16. It displays harmony. Look at this, verse 16. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. If there's anything this world needs to see in Christians, it's harmony. Paul says literally that we should be thinking the the same things toward one another, having the same mind toward one another. He means being one in our pursuits, in our purpose, in our passion for Jesus. An attitude of harmony is the brand mark of a mature Christianity because it reflects the mind of Christ. Are we doing that? Do a self-check. Are you doing... Are we all going in the same direction? See, Peter... The Apostle Peter realized the importance of our unity as well. In 1 Peter chapter 3 and verses 8 and 9, he says this. He says, to sum it all up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. It's amazing how Jesus says something and Paul says something and Peter says something and they all sound the same. Gee, I wonder why that is. We need to be harmonious in our purpose. In other words, we must all be on the same page. Do you see yourself as part of the whole? You see yourself as part of the whole church? Not just the local church, but the universal church of which Christ is the head. One of my old profs at New England Bible College said these words. He said, isolation, disunity, and a lack of cooperation are antithetical to Christianity. They spell disaster for the church. The Old Testament Hebrew saw himself as a member of a nation, a tribe, and a family. He identified himself as an Israelite, a member of the people of God from the tribe of blank, the son of blank. Do you identify yourself that way as a Christian? A Jewish theologian once said that whereas Americans see themselves as individual trees, don't they? And only later the forest. The Hebrew first sees the forest and then the individual trees. Unfortunately, when the world looks at Christianity, this is what they often see. They often see individual trees, and sometimes those trees are corrupt and fail to see the greatness of the forest of the church. They'll look at one Christian that's gone, 
and done something terrible, and they'll just whitewash, I mean, they'll just throw out the whole church with it, right? They fail to see the greatness of the forest. Each one of us plays a part in painting this credible picture of the forest of Christian life to the world. Are you harmonizing with the other trees? That's the big question. And and how do we do that? To be humble in our pursuits, Paul says, do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. In other words, don't be high-minded, be like-minded. The message puts it like this, don't be stuck up. It's pretty simple. See, we must not pursue nor present to the world a sense of partiality, should we? James really speaks to that. James chapter 2 says, My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim that you have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people more than the others? For instance, suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and another comes in who is poor and dressed in shabby clothes. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, you can stand over there or else sit on the floor, well, doesn't, doesn't this discrimination show that you're guided by wrong motives? Listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom of God promised to those who love him? Paul corroborates that. Authentic Christianity is distinctly impartial. It will make room for the least of these as well as the most of these, the worst of these as well as the best of these. So humble in our pursuits, but we need to be honest in our approach. Verse 16 at the end of the verse, do not be wise in your own estimation. Paul is not suggesting that we adopt a patronizing attitude here. On the contrary, The actual Greek word means to be carried away along with and give oneself up to. In other words, it means being drawn into sympathy and empathy with lowly things or people. Are we as a church or as individuals carried away with the less fortunate? Am I? Do we actively invite them to our homes or in our church? Studies have shown that of all the reasons the unchurched people don't go to church, one of the most common is that they haven't been invited. See, there's no higher or lower caste distinctions in Christianity, is there? Jesus hated that kind of attitude. There's no place for an arrogant, aristocratic, I'm better than you attitude in authentic Christianity. The gospel of Christ is the only real leveler of us all, right? The ground's level at the foot of the cross, isn't it? Social status has nothing whatsoever to do with spiritual status. To understand that is to put to death the God of pride, which always wants to rule us. It always wants to rule us. Show sympathy, display harmony, Practice humility. That's the last thing in verse 16 here. Practice humility. It's very cut and dry. The command is clear. Don't be conceited, right? A powerful Christian attitude practices humility. Acknowledge your limitations. Don't act like Mr. Know-it-all and I've done it all because everyone knows that you don't and you haven't. (laughs) And neither have I. There's no place for arrogance and conceit in a life ruled by love, is there? 
my friends, we can never think that we are above everyone else just because we're Christians. We can't. If Christ didn't do it, how in the world can we do it? That kind of attitude will always keep people away from Christianity. Sympathy, harmony, and humility, on the other hand, will display a faith to the world that is both believable and irresistible. So let me just close with another familiar picture of what happens when a group of people exhibit an attitude of sympathy, harmony, and humility, and the power that that has to transform somebody's life. Brooklyn, New York. There's a school for children with learning disabilities called Kush. A few years ago, a father of one of the students spoke at a fundraising dinner for the school, and he began mildly enough thanking the person and that person, the other person. And then he startled everyone with an anguished question. Where is the perfection in my son, Shia? Everything done in heaven is done with perfection, but my child cannot understand the things that other children do. Where is the perfection in that? And the guests all sat silently. I believe, the man continued, that when heaven brings a child like this into the world, the perfection it seeks is in the way that people react to this child. He then told the story that one day and his son were watching some boys play ball, and Shia wanted to play, and the father went over and spoke with the pitcher of one of the teams, and the boy was at first unsure, and then he shrugged and said, whatever, we're in the eighth inning and behind by six runs. We've got nothing to lose. Sure, he can play short center field, and we'll let him bat in the ninth. So Shia was ecstatic. He, he shambled out to his position and just stood there. By the bottom of the ninth, his team had scored some runs and was only behind by two, and the bases were loaded, and they also had two outs, and they needed a home run to make it work. Only Shia was the one scheduled to bat. So the boys conferred, and to the father's amazement, they handed the bat to him, and he stood over the base, clutching the bat askew, way too tight. Pitcher from the opposing team then did a remarkable thing. He took several steps closer, and he lobbed the ball easy right over the plate. Shia swung wildly and missed widely. One of his teammates came up behind him, wrapped his arms around him from behind, and together they held the bat. Pitcher lobbed another easy ball, and Shia and his teammate bunted it together. It rolled right to the pitcher. All the players shouted for Shia to run to first, and he shuffled along, and the pitcher could have had an easy out, but he threw the ball wide to far right field. Shia made the first base, and the player yelled for him to take second. Again, the right fielder threw wide and far, and Shia made second, and on and on it went, all the runners making it home. Shia loping along and everyone from both sides screaming themselves hoarse for him to run all the way. And he touched home plate and both sides came screaming in. They mounted Shia on their shoulders and paraded him as a hero. That day, the father said, those 18 boys reached their perfection in heaven's eyes. Now, I think an experience like that shows that when people with a God-honoring attitude, are willing to step up and stoop down, 
God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And the table that we just celebrated reminds us of the incredible grace of God that he showed us when he sent his son, Jesus Christ. The upstairs came down to us. Isn't that precisely what people should encounter in each of us who have a saving faith relationship with Jesus? So do me a favor this week, would you? Go and give him Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the picture of what it means to be like Jesus in this chapter. Oh, we heartily admit, Lord, that it's not easy and it doesn't even sound easy. But you've given us strength in your Holy Spirit to have the power within to complete the commands that you give us and to obey you. Help us this week, our Father, to put ourselves aside and to be all that we can be for Jesus as we rely and trust in him. Let us not try to do it on our own and in our own strength because it will come off very poorly. But rather, let us submit ourselves to him, to you, and just walk the way that you call us. Let us follow your lead for the sake of your kingdom, not only in heaven, but the one that you want us to live here on earth until the day that you return. I pray it. Amen.